0: I want to make one point of clarification from uh, last week, particularly to those C.S. Lewis lovers that I jolted last week by calling Aslan a tiger. I apologize. I know I committed the mortal sin against all C.S. Lewis lore. Um, I don't know what came over me. It was a fever, a plague, perhaps this cerebral confusion with another big cat named Tony. I'm not exactly... uh, I do know... As a matter of fact, that he is a lion. I appreciate the thousand people who pointed that out to me. <laughs> By the end of the service, I'm saying, I know. From a preacher's standpoint, though, just so you can kind of see behind the curtain, it's kind of a moment of truth for the preacher when he's preaching and all of a sudden people begin laughing or they turn to each other and start mouthing things or the head goes at about 28 degrees, and it's like a 1,000 pounds is on their toe. They're going like that. So what do I do at that point? If I just stop and say, what did I just say, that undermines any confidence you have in me going forward. And so I just did the next best thing, which is just plow forward, and that's generally what I'll do. So uh, that was for your entertainment pleasure. Hopefully, it'll be another 13 years before that happens again. <laughs> let's uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace to us in Jesus Christ, and Lord, I stand on the truth of your word that if your Son be lifted up, not simply on a cross, but also in the declarations from pulpit, if He be lifted up, He will draw men and women uh, to Himself, and uh, that is my. That is my plea and my prayer, uh, that Christ might be held high uh, and exalted for all that he is and all that he has already done for us in even that which he has yet to do. So would you open our eyes and and, uh, gird up our minds? to hear this truth. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, folks, you know now already how Matthew, Matthew is writing to a church that doesn't fully understand about Jesus, that, that doesn't know all that there is to know about Jesus. So he's instructing them in terms of his, in terms of the character and the person of Jesus Christ. He, he wants them to know, even even what is to be known of Jesus from the infancy narratives. There is much to learn even before Jesus even began to walk. And that's what we're going to learn today. Think about it. In the first chapter, Matthew's intent is very directed. It's very clear. This Jesus is unique. Yes, he's human. He has a human lineage. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. He is a human being. He is a true Israelite king. And yet the second half of chapter 1, what do we find? We found that he has a divine lineage, right? The virgin birth, he has no earthly father, conceived of the spirit. He's the divine son of God. So here, Matthew, in the first chapter, he's the divine son of man. Profound. Move immediately to chapter 2, and you have reaction to that. Right, The first half is speaking about the Magi coming from the east. Great expense, cost, sacrifice. We're going to worship this unique God-man that has come among us. We're going to bow down and worship him. Then in the second half of chapter 2, you have a reaction. It's anger. It's antagonism. It's hatred. Matthew wants to make very clear this Jesus is radically unique and he's going to cause unique reactions among all people. So we do well to pay attention to what we're going to find even in these infancy narratives, these these stories at Jesus' birth, as it shines a light on who he is. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter two. We'll read thirteen to twenty-three. the wise men became furious, he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, you know, right in verse 13 he begins, he says, now when they had departed, of course he's referencing the wise men who had been born in a dream not to go back to Herod because Herod had desires to kill this child. Now the threat was real because the angel then appears to Joseph and says, hey, uh, get up, he's in the middle of sleeping, get up, take the child, his mother, and go to Egypt, flee to Egypt, which Joseph did immediately. This is no small issue here. This isn't going to Kroger. He's waking up in the middle of the night, no provisions. There's no food stores that he can just easily pack. And they begin to travel at night, which was an incredibly dangerous proposition. Not only that, it was an arduous task. 90 miles from Bethlehem to the border of Egypt. I mean, think about just, hey, honey, we're leaving right now on a 90-mile journey, of which we'll be walking and perhaps riding a donkey, max. Max. We're going to go down there at night in the pitch black. Not only that, but they were leaving the land of Israel. They were leaving the land that God had promised to them. They were going into exile. Now, while there is a Jewish contingent in Egypt at the time, some figure as many as a million Jews were in Egypt at the time, so they would have a, a soft landing, perhaps, with their own people. It would still be very, very difficult. But I don't want you to think for a minute, that this took place because of some political threat or political intrigue or the ramblings of a wicked king. I want you to see this as God superintending all of the events. God is all over this. He is the choreographer of this entire narrative. Think of how many times you hear, and this was to fulfill, and this was to fulfill, and this was to fulfill. God is driving this train. Now, I want to... I want to explain something perhaps a little difficult to understand. Perhaps you haven't heard of it, uh, but I think it's important uh, for us to go forward with the gospel. Because when you see these scriptures fulfilled, you'll notice that this one story has three parts to it, and each part has three Old Testament quotations associated with it. And all these quotations are fulfilled. Now, When we speak about a scripture being fulfilled, sometimes it is what we call a predictive prophecy. There will be a virgin, and she will give birth to a son. So there's an event that's going to take place in the future, and boom, when it happens, we know it's fulfilled prophecy. I, I don't think Matthew is speaking of predictive prophecies here. I think Matthew is doing something different. For him, fulfilled is he's looking back at these past events that occurred. He's not looking forward. For example, in Hosea, Hosea, in verse 15, he's quoting the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. He says, out of Egypt I called my son. When Hosea wrote that, he wasn't looking to the Messiah. He was looking back at the Exodus, the time that Israel came out of Egypt and failed in the desert. Or the next one, in verse 18, it's Jeremiah. Jeremiah is not speaking about the Exodus. He's speaking about the other failure of Israel, and that is the exile when they had failed to be obedient to God, he sent them to Babylon. and It wasn't looking to the Messiah. It was looking to that time that he was living through, which was the exile. So I don't think these are uh, predictive prophecies. We call these actually typological prophecies. In other words, what they're doing is that Matthew is looking back at the history of Israel. And he's going to draw a picture for Jesus, that Jesus is going to be the new Israel. He's going to be the faithful Israel. It's not speaking about what the Messiah will do, but the Messiah is doing something that Israel didn't do. It's very important for you to understand this. That when you think about the scriptures, in the first 11 chapters, you have this massive failure of humanity. You have the judgment of the flood, and you have this regathering of people, this covenant given to Noah, and then what happens? The world populates, and then what do they do? They build, a tent, they build this tower to try to reach God. They're doing the same thing that Adam tried to do, tried to be God. And so humanity failed. Boom. God pulls Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make a people through you, and the nations will be blessed through you. God always had a plan to redeem and to save, and it was going to be through Abraham or Abraham's seed. Well, Abraham's seed, of course, populates, and you see the nation of Israel, and they are to be the son of God. They are to be the true son. They are to be, through their obedience and through their worship of the greatness of God, the nations were to come and to see the glory of Yahweh and repent and return and to move towards him. But as we know, the seed of Abraham failed. They failed in the exile, they failed in the exodus. And so Jesus now is the seed of Abraham who has come to be faithful Israel to declare God's glory to the nations, to establish a covenant through which we can be saved. So what Matthew is doing is Matthew is looking back at, at these ex, the exodus and the exile, the two examples of the failure. Of it. Even though Israel was drawn back from uh, exile. They still failed. They still failed to walk in obedience. And so Matthew's saying, Jesus is Israel. He will be faithful Israel to do all that Israel didn't do. Think about it for a minute. As Israel went down to Egypt, Jesus went down to Egypt. As Pharaoh tried to kill the male children of Israel, so Herod tried to kill the male children of Israel including Jesus, as Israel came out of Egypt, landed in the desert, succumbed to the temptation and failed, Jesus is going to come out of Egypt and he's going to be tempted. We're going to see that in chapter four, but he's going to succeed because Jesus lived perfectly so that he would bear the curse that we should have borne. He will live perfectly. He will be the perfect son. He'll be the true son. So what Matthew is saying to us here is even at the infancy of Christ, he is holding himself up saying, this is my true son. This is my son through whom I will redeem all people. That Israel will bless the nations, but it's going to be through Christ. There's no more ethnicity of Israel that is kind of the the focal point, but it's now Jesus. It's now by faith. This, by the way, speaks volumes to the way we understand theology and the way we understand Israel and the way we understand the church. That he is Israel. To go back to an ethnic Israel once Jesus has been the real Israel is to go back into Old Testament times, and the scriptures don't warrant it. That's the first thing he's saying. Jesus has now been the perfect son, fully obedient. Folks, rest in this. Rest in his obedience and his sufficiency. And he is the true obedient son that will satisfy the father that we might be reconciled. That's what we're going to see as we go forward. But you have to understand now that Jesus is comprising all of Israel to understand the rest of the gospel of Matthew. But that's not only what we see in this text. We also see that Jesus is being revealed as the suffering son, not just the obedient son, but the suffering son, look what happens when the Magi skip town and don't tell Herod uh, where they have found this newborn king. Herod, Herod's a psychopath, and, and he goes into this fury. Now, we've already seen and spoken about Herod. I mean, Herod had a taste for blood. He murdered his favorite wife. I don't know what that means for the others, but supposedly she was his favorite wife, murdered his three own sons. Murdered his mother-in-law, murdered his brother-in-law, conspirators that tried to assassinate him. He murdered the ten of them and their families. Even when he knew he was dying, he commanded his troops to murder the Jewish nobility upon his death so that all Israel would mourn when he left. He was crazy. And he was destructive. And so when those wise men didn't return with the answer that he had, he went into full fury. And he goes to Bethlehem, and he figures two years and younger will be enough of a gap to kill this would-be king. So he murders all these children. Can you imagine? Now, now, unfortunately, often we've heard numbers like a thousand babies died. Well, at the time, according to Josephus, there was only a thousand people in Bethlehem at the time so the numbers are more likely one or two dozen babies now I don't mean to minimize the searing loss that those parents would have felt I mean to have guards come in and impale your child to stop him from being a threat to Herod I don't mean to minimize that I'm just trying to explain what many critics do many critics want to say hey this is nowhere in secular history it never happened Well, the reason it never happened, or excuse me, the reason it was never recorded is because Herod had a bucket of atrocities. Two dozen children, as unfathomable to our minds as that is, he had a litany of examples that could have been used that weren't all recorded. But look what Matthew says to this example. He says, thus was fulfilled. And then he quotes Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah, let me remind you, He's speaking of the exile. Now, the exile is Israel had failed to walk in obedience to God, and so God is sending them, he's deporting them to Babylon, and they're gathered at this town called Ramah. Now, Nebuchadnezzar and his armies had slaughtered children, by the way, and was deporting. All these people back to Babylon. So when Jeremiah in verse 15 says that Rachel is weeping, Rachel had long been dead. He's speaking metaphorically that Rachel, as the mother of Israel, is weeping over her children, all of, her, all of the children and children's children that came from her. All those children were going to be no more. They're going to move to Babylon, that Israel would be no more. So she's weeping. Now what's interesting about the passage of Jeremiah is that in verse 16, He says, weep no more. Why? The whole passage is a chapter of hope. It's unbelievable hope how God, even in the midst of the exile, even in the midst of the tears, even in the midst of the death, he will bring forth a covenant that will be radically unique from all other covenants. It'll be a better covenant. It'll be a greater covenant because it's going to be a covenant made that God will place us all in our hearts. God will dwell with us. We will be forgiven. We will live forever. It's far greater than the covenant made with the blood of bulls and goats that could never take away sin. Matthew, I think, is doing, he's saying, people, remember the tears of Rachel. Consider the tears of the women in Bethlehem and the tears of Rachel when the kids were no more. And out of that deep grief will come one, will come one, who will replace those tears with joy because one will come to establish a covenant through which, by faith, we can live forever. Even those children that were murdered in Bethlehem will be brought forth to life again because Christ will bring eternal life. And Matthew's saying, this baby is going to dry up the tears of those Bethlehem mothers as Jesus Christ, through his blood, establishes a covenant such that, by faith, we can be reconciled to the Father through the sacrifice that he will bear. He will bear death, shame, guilt, so that we might live forever. This is what Jesus has come to do. Jesus' life was not random. The Father said, no, you will be the obedient son. You will be the suffering son. And then thirdly, he's going to be the despised son. It's amazing how, you know, when Carol's asking me about the sermon, And I told her at like 4 o'clock yesterday, it is not seaworthy. And I thought, but it's about Jesus Christ. It's all this is about. It's incredible how much I... It's a pleasure uh, as a preacher to speak about the glory of Christ. It really is. So the third thing we see here is, is that he is the despised son. Notice what happens... Here, so Joseph has fled to, uh, to Europe, to Egypt. That's my next vacation, baby. Let's go to Europe. I love Europe. Okay, so he's in Egypt. We don't know how long. We know that Herod died at 4 B.C. That's not as bad as the tiger, though, is it? No, it's not. Uh, the, uh, so we don't know how long they were in Egypt, but we know that Herod died at 4 B.C., and we know that it was a third angelic visitation uh, that woke Joseph up and said, Get up, go back to Israel, uh, which he did do. He did immediately. He comes back into Judea and he finds that Achilles, Herod's son, who was like a chip off the old block in terms of his cruelty, uh, was reigning there. Worn in a dream, he goes to Galilee in a city called Nazareth. Now, notice that uh, it says uh, to fulfill, let's see here it says, so what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, if truth be told, there is no Old Testament scripture that says Jesus will be called a Nazarene. But I want you to notice that Matthew uses a different expression or a different fulfillment formula. He always says the prophet, or he says it will be fulfilled according to the prophet. But notice here in verse 23, it's the prophets, it's plural. And, And most scholars think that what Matthew is doing is he's saying there isn't a specific Old Testament text that you can refer to, but there's a general tenor in the Old Testament that speaks about the Messiah, this God-man, who will be despised and persecuted and rejected. And I, I think that makes sense, because to be called a Nazarene was a pejorative term. It was a term of derision. It was a scorn. It was a cut. Nazareth was a backwater, podunk town. It's never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's never mentioned in the Talmud. It's never mentioned in Josephus. It was in Galilee, many Gentiles living there. It was a place that oftentimes Jews and Gentiles would mix in marriage. They were considered mixed bloodlines. Nobody considered. Think about when Jesus was in ministry, and and even Nathaniel, wondering about this Jesus, he asked, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, Nazareth Nazareth was seen as just just a hole-in-the-wall place that you would never want to end up being. And yet it says, according to the word of the Lord, or, or fulfilled the prophets, that God would sovereignly place Jesus in Nazareth. In other words, it would be laughable that a Messiah would come out of Nazareth. And yet that's what God ordained, reminding us that his life going forward would be one of rejection, despising, shame. It reminds me of Psalm 22 when you read, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. That, that Jesus Christ has come not simply to be the obedient son that we could never be. He has come to be the suffering son of which we could never bar, bear the suffering. And he's come to be the rejected son for us. So when, when you look at these infancy narratives, you think, What a God that he would send, Jesus, to be all these things for us. I mean, to think of Jesus as an infant and Matthew saying it was all right there for us. So what do we do with this? I mean, how do we respond to this? Kind of, you know, when we think of God being many people, particularly people who don't read the Bible or read it very, Casually, would say, "God seems so harsh in the Old Testament. Is He really harsh? I mean, isn't God merciful? Isn't God gracious to give us a Son that would that would be all of this for us? How do we respond to it? You know, Chapter Two in Matthew is really about responding to the revelation that God's given us. Now, some of us uh, and some of you here, you may respond to this sermon with a degree of ambivalence. Well, it's nice. I didn't know some of these things. It was interesting." and you walk away with a degree of casualness or, well, I'm not sure what I would do with that, and and there's a sort of you just get back to figuring you're going to cut the lawn and you're going to get back with life. I I want you to know that ambivalence to this kind of revelation is full and outright rejection. I I, I do. I I want you to know the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. It's ambivalence. To, To hear, if you believe this, to hear that, that God would do this for us in Christ and to walk away unscathed or untouched or unmoved. I'm not speaking about visceral emotions per se but, or, or just because your hair is not standing on, your end, on, on the end of your arms. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that to not be moved by such an overture of love that one would come for us as a substitute. That, that ambivalence is damning. It's damning. That, that, that's one response we could have. The other response is anger or hostility, which the gospel will produce, and we will see it as we go through. In fact, Matthew is particularly clear on the anger of the religious against Jesus. And that's why I think it's so exciting to preach to the church about this. A lot of times, the church needs to hear the gospel over and over again. But there is hostility. I mean, to say all of this about a baby that he's, going to, he's the God-man, he's going to be suffering for us, you know, that only he can bear our sins, we can't even bear our sins. I mean, that offends people. Many of us have strong intelligence, and this story seems to run roughshod over that. You can't ask me to believe that all this was foretold, and God did a, you know, You really struggle with the intellectual part of this. Others of you have a degree of moral rigor. You are moral people. And you live moral lives. And so when you hear about the necessity of so great a sacrifice to save you, you cannot believe it. You think, I cannot be that bad that I need someone this good to deliver me. And this is what Paul says. this is The gospel is a stumbling block. It is. It's a, it's a scandal. It's a stumbling block. I'm too smart to believe this, or I'm too moral to need this. It's one or the other. But that's rejection on the same. The other response is adoration or awe. Just a jaw-dropping sense of, I cannot believe that God would do this. And when I speak about adoration, I'm not speaking about some kind of mystical closing of your eyes, sensing spiritual things. And No, no, I'm talking about something hardline and as clear as being obedient to the Scriptures. I mean, to adore Christ is to be obedient. Matthew will make much of obedience. He's going to, he places a high value on us obeying the word of God. I mean, look at Joseph here. Joseph is put here as an example for us. Notice when the angel said to him, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Do you see what's in the next verse? He gets up, he takes the child and the mother and flees. I mean, it's like marching orders. When he's in Egypt, he's told to get up and go. He does the same thing. It's amazing. He is obedient. I mean, I think about Joseph even taking mary as his wife people would have known she was pregnant before they were married people could have assumed she had been with another man the scorn that he would have faced in taking her as his bride would have been intense the rejection that's the family you know in the neighborhood that's the family that you know and and the rejection that he would have faced and yet his obedience is sterling There is a clear call for the Christian here. I'm not calling the non-Christian here or the ambivalent. I'm not calling you to obedience. I would call you to repentance, that by faith you would place your hope in this infant who will become a king who is glorious to behold. But for the Christian here, I would call you to obedience. What do you make of obedience? Have we in the American evangelical church fallen so far on grace that God's going to forgive me that we don't think about the commands Jesus says clearly, if you love me, you obey me. What do you make of those? I mean, go down to the lower levels. Not the, I'm not committing adultery. But what role does obedience play in your life? I mean, do you think about these things? When you're not obedient, you repent. We're not looking for moral perfection here. We already know that that can't be matched. But are you obedient to the commands as you know them? Let's just start with the ones you know. Uh, Secondly, the suffering aspect. You know, if we're going to walk after Jesus, there is suffering. It's just part and parcel of this life, not the next. The suffering in this life leads to glory in the next. We read that even last week. Now, our suffering is not a propitiation for sins. We don't bear sins. We don't bear guilt and just wrath against sins. But we are propagating the gospel as we suffer. Think about it for a minute. Jesus suffered prior to glory. Are we not to suffer? I'm not looking to suffer for what I do wrong. I'm looking to suffer by following Jesus. Have we fallen so far from this passionate pursuit of Christ in my conversations with people, in the way I handle my life, that I face no persecution? Peter says this in uh, his first letter, he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There's the thing that we have our eye cast towards. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or evildoer, or a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So many times I think the lack of suffering in my own life is because it's caused by fear of me not moving in ways that I should walk. So I don't face suffering because I'm not following the one who did suffer. So I would ask you to consider your lives in that. How often do you shrink back in terms of the opportunities that you have to sacrifice yourself or to declare the truth of the gospel? because you don't want to incur that kind of suffering. Uh, Another way to adore him is not just through pursuing obedience and embracing suffering, but also this idea of being rejected. You know, we, like all the non-Christians, we love to be accepted, recognized. We love respect. We want to make sure that we get our fair due, that we want to make sure that I receive credit for what I do. Gone is that time that we see following the Nazarene means that you're going to be rejected. You're not going to be the greatest. You're not going to be the most popular person in the office because of your integrity and the the way you keep your life and the way you handle your marriage. You may not be the most popular in the community. Is that a bad thing? All the kings and the rulers and the princes that we respect, they have all the comfort in the world. They have all the respect and the recognition. They're going to die. They're going to die the same way we're going to die. And all that's going to be for naught that we have that eye toward that day. I think how often I find myself, you know, the the Christian wants to be the rock star just like the non-Christian, and yet it's clear he will be called a Nazarene. He'll be called scornful names, derided, rejected, despised, not well-valued, not well-respected or considered. Is that too much shame for us to bear in following him? I mean, Matthew is setting up for us a very, very strong, a strong gospel of calling us out of the comfort zones that we in, in evangelicalism have fashioned and to begin to walk boldly, like Christ is going to walk. And that, incidentally, is probably the greatest mark of what it means to be a Christian. That's the greatest evidence. So I would just ask you to consider these things. The obedience, the issues of suffering, the willingness to be rejected as a mark of what it means to follow the Nazarene. Let's take a few minutes now and and perhaps confess that this time that we have now, we have a number of minutes, we're not pressed for time. What we're trying to do here, people, is, is church is really about preparing you to see Christ. I mean, that is our goal. As we talk as elders, what, what is most imperative to do so that when you die, you will thank God that you are in this church? That, that, is, that is really on the front of our minds. It's not simply, how are you going to get by next week? That's, that is important to us, by the way. That is important to us. But fundamentally, even greater than that, how are you going to be prepared to see Christ. And and when we do see Christ, it's going to be a time of great celebration, rejoicing. I think there'll be some regret. I think there'll be some measure of drawback over, wow, it is all true. Why didn't I do what I knew and was prompted to do? And so this is a time where we kind of just get a foretaste of what that great day will be like. And so we make it extemporaneous and we make it corporate. We are a family. We are the body of Christ. We're his gathered people now. As Israel gathered a people, they failed. Now Jesus has come, and that's why he pulls 12 disciples, right? 12 apostles, Tamir, the 12 tribes. He's gathering a people, and we are that people. And so I would ask you to give word as the Spirit of God may prompt you. Uh, it can be a word of confession, a word of thanks, just a word of praise for Jesus Christ, And I would ask you to be loud so that we could hear you and agree with you. That's what amen means. Yes, I confess that's true. Um, And I would ask you to be brief so that others might join with you in prayer and being able to give voice. So let me begin for us, and then um, Ray is going to close us. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy to us in Jesus, even as a babe. These things were laid before him that he willingly knew, he, he knew and he willingly embraced to walk out for your glory and for our joy. Swell our hearts with affections for Christ. Thank you.